ओम ज्ञान ज्ञानंजन शलाकाय चक्षुर्मीतम श्री गुरव नम वंदे श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य निनंद सहोरी गौरदाय पुष्पितोत्मोनुद Reading from Gopal Tapani Upanishad, manuscript of the commentary, a work in progress. Last time we gathered for discussing this manuscript, we discussed verse two, in which the goddess Ibisaraswati, goddess of the Shruti, introduced a narrative with the auspicious invocation, Om, a narrative involving a discussion. between Brahma and the Kumaras and we discussed at some length the significance of these two persons the person Brahma and his four sons the Kumaras significance in terms of their being well positioned in the spiritual hierarchy persons of knowledge and Brahma for that matter speaking from the position of having been enlightened via the Gopal mantra that in fact he introduces here in verse 3 when he answers the questions of the sages found here in verse 2 we never even actually read those questions because we spoke only about om the prefaces the questions and who was asking them and who was answering them which served to as i mentioned underscore the importance of the topic the spiritual depth of the topic being as it is a topic involving post liberated status in not only devotion which is post liberated involvement in the lord's leela but a special kind of devotion the kind of devotion that we find in mandaban in the braj leela of krishna so deep subject matter and serious and learned persons discussing it this is the point what were the questions munayo havai brahmanam uchu ka paramo deva what is the meaning ka paramo deva they asked who ka paramo deva who is the supreme deity kuto mrityu bibheti of whom is death afraid kasya vigyane nakilam vignatum bhavati by knowing what can all things be fully known kenedam vishvam sansharatiti by whom is the universe made to turn very abstract <laughs> which is characteristic of the upanishads so verse 3 brahma begins his answer tad u hovach brahmanaha kishmu vai paramam devatam गोविंदम मृत्युर्भेति कोपी जनभलभानेनभवतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदिनाथ्यानमतीहायदि
birth in a Brahmin family or being ordained as, as a Brahmin. What she seeks to say by use of this word in describing the speaker, Brahma, as the Brahmana, is the full import of the word. That Brahma, the person who's going to give the answer, is one who is fully absorbed in contemplating the nature of Brahman, the nature of ultimate reality. And because he is so fully absorbed in contemplating the nature of Brahman, he gives this answer about Brahman. Krishna vai paramam daivata. That Krishna is the supreme God, the supreme deity. Prabhupada Saraswati has commented that by use of the word Brahmana, she wants to say that Brahma is absorbed in Brahman in a particular way, in search of a particular taste of devotional service. So the implication is that to be fully absorbed in Brahman means to come to the full experience of Brahman. What is the full experience of Brahman? In Taitareya Upanishad, it's mentioned, Rasu Vai Saha, discussing the nature of Brahman, it is said, He, Saha, Brahman, is Rasa. Rasu Vai Saha, He is Rasa. This is the particular approach that our Sampradaya, Srila Rupa Goswami, Prabhupada in particular, has taken to explaining the nature of Brahman, the subject of the Upanishads. And compared to the other approaches, that of the monist, Advaitin Shankar, and the devotional Vedantins, beginning with Ramanuja, who was the first to articulate a understanding of Brahman that, among other things, sought to defeat or overturn the monistic idea of Shankar, then Madhva, oh, and then you have the Nimbarka, Vishnu Swami, these are the four sampradayas of the Vaishnavas, and the fifth mentioned is the Shankar Sampradaya, which of course is monistic and not a Vaishnav Sampradaya. And then we have, of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Sampradaya. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Sampradaya from these other Vaishnav Sampradayas and Shankar Sampradaya, all of which seek to explain the nature of Brahman, the nature of reality. Brahman is the subject of the Upanishads and the name given to the reality, the great one, the great it, great something, the greatest, it means, Brahman. The distinguishing characteristic is that the approach that Rupa Goswami has taken is one of not only defining Brahman, but within Brahman, refining that definition and thereby they're distinguishing between, for example, Krishna and Narayana. I mean, he's a Vaishnava, ours is a Vaishnava doctrine, so we understand Brahman to be ultimately a person. We speak about Brahman in terms of Brahman being the effulgence of the Lord. We speak of Paramatma as being a partial manifestation of the Lord, who is the Supreme Brahman, Parabrahma. Arjun addresses Krishna as such in Bhagavad Gita. So Brahman, Parabrahma, you can say. But it's true that Krishna is Brahman, Krishna is Paramatma. In one sense, these are different angles of vision of the same thing. And therefore, often in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, there's these three phases, we can say, moments of the Absolute, as I've described them in some of my writings, are different perceptions of the Absolute, derives from different methods of approach. 
the jnanis approach the absolute in a particular way and the absolute reveals itself as brahman the yogis in another way and brahman the absolute reveals itself as paramatma the devotees in still another way and the absolute reveals himself to be the supreme person not i and the godius one step further they see krishna to be the supreme as much as bhagwan is the full manifestation of the absolute for vaishnav as well i shouldn't say that exactly because not all the vaishnavas look at it exactly as we do in ramanuja vedanta for example brahman and krishna there's no difference we make a kind of a, a differentiation we say that the absolute is by nature joyful and therefore it must exist and it must be cognizant and the existential and cognitive aspects of the absolute have then manifestations that correspond known as parma and brahman whereas the full face of the absolute is joy so within bhagwan the idea is that parmatma is there brahman is there as well so what rupa goswami has done the means by which he's taken to explaining and defining describing the absolute as i say as a slightly different route than these other vedantists and although he draws from the upanishad this taitreya upanishad in particular rasovaisa this he makes the whole presentation on the basis of this idea that the absolute it's mentioned in the upanishads is rasa so then he articulates a whole aesthetic theory his rasa theory it rasa means aesthetic rapture sacred aesthetic rapture so he says taitreya upanishad says brahman is sacred aesthetic rapture we accept that then he goes on to explain in such detail for example in bhakti rasamrita sindhu how krishna is the be all and end all of aesthetic rapture there are different types of aesthetic experience given by the aestheticians in secular poetic and dramatic theory ras theory ras shastra he's taken those and adjusted them slightly for the purpose of explaining brahman and he demonstrates that really that there is only one aesthetic experience rasa and that's called bhakti and it has five primary and seven secondary shades shantadasya sakya vatsalya madhurya are the primary ones and then seven secondary ones that to augment those primary sentiments and he's demonstrated from bhagavatam in his bhakti rasamrita sindhu that krishna appeared and he demonstrated practically in his leela that he was rasa raj or the full-fledged personification of all aesthetic experience and that in relation to him through bhakti which is the means of having relationship one can derive bhakti rasa in any of these shades or tastes flavors so it's a very interesting approach and different from the other schools of vedanta that kind of approached shankar more on his own ground in terms of debating with him as to the personhood of the absolute as to the efficacy of bhakti in comparison to gyan and so forth Guru Goswami has taken it in a sense to new heights and so here in Gopal Tapani this is brought out by Prabodhan Saraswati that he's saying that brahman the word brahmana is used here in identifying brahma the idea behind shruti's use of this word is that here the person who is going to speak is fully absorbed in contemplating the nature of brahman and full absorption and contemplating the nature of brahman brings one to chamatkar what is chamatkar chamatkar is wonder adbhuta astonishment the nature of the absolute is astonishing full of wonder and chamatkar is the basis of aesthetic experience 
In other words, in any aesthetic experience that one has, even a secular aesthetic experience, or to speak of what we're talking about, sacred aesthetic experience, there's a sense of wonder, chamatkar. So he says, fully contemplating the nature of Brahman, one comes to chamatkar, wonder, which is non-different from rasa. And so Brahman here is being depicted by Shruti Devi in this narration as one who is in contemplating Brahman, seeking out a particular taste, rasa. He's in search of rasa. Rasovaisa, in the Vedanta Sutra, it's mentioned that... How does it begin? Vedanta Sutra, Ramanriti? What is the meaning? Atato Brahma Jignashu. What does Jignashu mean? To inquire. So, Atato Brahma Jignashu means now is the time to inquire about Brahman. This is how Vedanta Sutra begins. What does Vedanta Sutra deal with? Vedanta Sutra deals with the meaning of the Upanishads. It seeks to show that all the diverse statements in the Upanishads are saying the same thing. They're all seeking to shed light on the nature of ultimate reality, Brahman. So one who comes to study the Upanishads, the sutras say, for that person, now is the time to inquire about Brahman. You have to be at that level of your inquiry in life. And Vedanta Sutra, dealing as it does with the Upanishads, is dealing with the latter half, more so the conclusion of the Veda. Veda is a vast body of knowledge. The last part, the conclusion, is the Upanishads. The greater body of the text of the Veda deals with religious life rather than experiential spiritual life. It deals with how to interrelate with the world with a sense of the proprietorship of God. That's what we call religious life. Whereas the Upanishads deal with the fact that actually we're not the body. So that changes the equation a little bit. It kind of ups the ante. One thing is to be, well, in the world and identified with the body, acknowledging the proprietorship of God in the course of everything we do. Another thing is to realize that this whole thing is here today and gone tomorrow. And there's something that endures, and that's me. I'm different from all of this musical chairs of changing husbands and wives is popular today and whatever else may go on. Everything is here today and gone tomorrow. And what remains is me. I'm the constant observer of the ever-changing material phenomena. So this is what the Upanishads deal with. And to inquire into the subject matter there requires that one be a little bit exhausted with material pursuit, however religious that may be. Therefore, the Purva Mimamsa, there's Uttar and Purva Mimamsa. Uttar means later and Purva means early. So the Purva Mimamsa is a doctrine dealing with the first part of the Veda that deals with that religious life. And it begins with the statement, Atato Dharma Jignashu. Now is the time to inquire about Dharma. Because by inquiring about how to be religious and leading one's life accordingly and developing faith in the scripture, by doing so, by experiencing its efficacy, how living a religious life is fruitful and happy and so forth comparatively, one reaching the kind of full development of pious life and turn to inquire about more, about Brahman. Now, many of us have come to this without going through a very extremely religious life under the jurisdiction of the Veda. So how have we come to become qualified to inquire into the Upanishads? Maybe we should go back and study the Vedas and learn how to be religious. There's some truth to that, but for the most part, 
we've become qualified in a very basic way to inquire about Brahman because why? From Sadhu Sangha. So if we associate with the Sadhu, we can get Adhikar for inquiring more deeply. So we have Dharma Jignasu, we have Brahma Jignasu, and Rasa Jignasu now. So Brahma is inquiring about Rasa within Brahman. We're going very, very deep to find that it is full of wonder and that wonder is the basis of aesthetic experience, aesthetic rapture. And then in exploring aesthetic rapture, we come to the conclusion that Krishna must be the supreme God. Krishna paramo daivatam, as Brahma says. In his contemplation, he reaches this conclusion and therefore he answers the sage's first question, who is the supreme deity? Based on his absorption, he comes to this conclusion, Krishna is the supreme deity because Brahman is rasa and Krishna exemplifies or personifies the full experience of rasa. What does Bhagavatam say about that, Ramanreti? That's another thing. Krishna is too Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is the Supreme Person. On what basis do we conclude that Krishna is the Supreme Person? What approach has Rupa Goswami taken to arrive at the conclusion that Krishna is the Supreme Person? What makes Krishna the Supreme Person over Narayan? But what does that mean? What, what, what is Aishpari? What is Vaikuntha? What goes on in Vaikuntha? Reverence. Reverence? What does that mean? Reverence. Dasya. Yeah. But Shanta. What goes on in Goloka doesn't go on in Vaikuntha. What are those loving exchanges? Rasas. Rasas. So on the basis of rasa, on the basis of the analysis of a sacred aesthetic rapture, the potential for experiencing that, for expressing that, for tasting that, for being that, he says Krishna is supreme. Narayan is also God. There's no difference between Krishna and Narayan. They're both God. But from the point of view of tattva, philosophy, they're Vishnu tattva. Are you Vishnu tattva? No. But Narayan is Vishnu tattva. Krishna is Vishnu tattva, right? Vishnu tattva means the tattva of God. We're different. So God Krishna, God Ram, God Narayan, Narasimha, Vamana, they're all God. It's all the same tattva, same principle, same metaphysical principle. They're all Brahman. But, Rupa Goswami says, <laughs> Can you give the translation? Right. Sadantas Tatabedepi. In Siddhanta they are one. But in terms of rasa, if we look from that side, from Bhava, then oh there's a difference. And the difference is that there's a greater balance that we find in Krishna of potential for experiencing rasa, which is what Brahman is about, which is what life is about. He is the supreme taster of rasa, not Narayan. This is the angle that Rupa Goswami has taken. Very difficult to argue with, actually. So in touch with their one, but from the point of view of rasa, there's a difference. And Brahman is rasa? Krishna is the supreme rasa? What does Bhagavatam say? What is the example? How do we know that Krishna is the supreme taster of rasa? Rasa and rasika. He is rasa and rasika. He is rasa and he tastes rasa. What is an example from Bhagavatam in Krishna Lila? Is there any praman evidence in Bhagavatam that Krishna tastes all twelve rasas? Five primary and seven secondary rasas. When he enters the wrestling, ring. When he enters the wrestling arena in Mathura. 
Chanura and Mastika are there. They see him in a particular way. Kamsa sees him in a particular way. The coward boys see him in a particular way. Rupees are seeing in a particular way. Everybody there, Bhagavatam explains, you study that verse, you say, oh, all possibility for rasa is found in Krishna, not in Narayana. This is the approach Rupa Goswami is saying. So Brahma, based on being a Brahmana, Shruti says, in the full sense of the term, answers the question, first question of the sages appropriately, by saying, in reply to their inquiry, who is the supreme deity? Krishna, Parama, Daivatam. Krishna is the supreme deity. Do you understand the logic? This is the Gaudiya Vaishnava logic. Why Krishna is the supreme? Therefore, Krishna is too Bhagavan Swaya. <laughs> then, what is the sage's second question? Who is death afraid of? Govinda Mrityur Bibheti, he says. Death is afraid of Govinda. Krishna is the supreme Brahman, Bhagwan. What is the difference between the name Krishna and Govinda? One sense, the name of Krishna covers the entire Leela of Krishna. In Dwarka, Krishna is Krishna. In Mathura, Krishna is Krishna. In Vrindavan, Krishna is also known as Krishna. So the name Krishna spans the entire Leela, from his pastoral Leela to his princely Leela. And Govindaji, that is relative to his Vrindavan Leela. Govinda, who gives pleasure to the cows, many meanings. The name is particular and relative to the Vrindavan Leela in terms of the person, Krishna. Narayan also has the name Govinda, but that is another thing. We're talking about Krishna. He's to find Krishna the supreme deity. He says, death is afraid of Govinda. Now the sages, they know the value of bhakti, of devotion, let us say. And they know the value of knowledge, that these things can bring liberation. And liberation is the end to all fear. What is fear? The sages ask, who is fear afraid of? So what is fear? Fear is based on our material identification. We are identified with something that we can't keep, and so there's some fear. The body is us in our sensibility. We have identified with the body in a particular mindset, personality, and it's not going to endure. So we're living, in terms of our identification, under the threat of non-existence. We're on death row. In terms of our sense of identity, material identity, at any moment, the call may come. And what is the life about? Trying to avoid that. We're busy trying to avoid that. So this is real Mahabhayam, the real fear. Repeated birth and death. Everything that I've gathered together to call myself and my own, my home, shall all be scattered again. So out of some fear, we're involved materially working, struggling. So the sages, they know, oh, this fear of material identification, that can be transcended by knowledge, by devotion. But they're asking something a little bit more specific here. They're asking not only how fear can be transcended, fear can be eradicated, resolved, but whom is fear or whom is death afraid of? Death is the fear of life. I have to die. So it's all going to be taken away. They want to know not only how to transcend fear or death, but who is fear itself or death itself afraid of? Who does death run away from? By gradual practice, continued sadhana and culture and so forth, we can remove ourselves from death. But in whose presence does death run far away from? By the culture of whose company 
is death, in other words, transcended as a byproduct of that only. So he says Govinda. And when he speaks Govinda, he's speaking about the Brajalila of Krishna. So he's saying in particular this Brajalila and the corresponding means to attain that, to enter there, to that level of Brahman, which we call Ragbhakti, Bodhya Vaishnav path, that path and the deity that corresponds with that, he's saying that is who death is afraid of, runs away from, as a byproduct of culturing, remembering the pastimes of Krishna as Govinda in Vrindavan. One can transcend death, he's saying, without thinking about it. Just like, for example, in Krishna's Dwarkalila, he also kills demons. But for the most part, what we find in the Dwarkalila, when Krishna kills them, they get rewards that are within the general religious system. Whereas in Vrindavan, he transcends that. He killed Putana. This is the best example. What happened to Putana? When Krishna killed Putana, she became an eternal nurse, nursemaid of Krishna in Goloka. This is super extraordinary excellence of Govinda. As opposed to Krishna in Dwarka, Matura, we don't find these things happening. Maybe they get liberation, maybe they get heaven and other such things. They're killed by Krishna, they see him, and they're purified at the last moment, and as a result, they get liberation. But Putana, in the Brajlila, got prema bhakti. So, this Govinda is being beyond all the rules. He does whatever he wants. Putana is the best example. Uddhava gave this example. Who He says, who would approach anybody, who in the right mind would take shelter of anybody else? Here is a person who came with the desire to kill an infant, at only three months old, and that isn't bad enough, by what means? What means did she take? Do you know? Putana sought to kill the infant Krishna. It's bad enough, as I say, if someone tries to kill an infant. But if you come disguised as a nurse, it's even worse. And worse still, she did it by smearing poison on her breast and offering her breast to be suckled by the infant. What could be more insidious? This contrast is there. Contrast to what? To the way in which Krishna responded, giving her prema bhakti, vatsalya bhakti. So what he's saying is that this Krishna in Vrindavan, known as Govinda, and this path that corresponds with this deity, Govindaji, Govindaji particularly in the mantra that Brahma is discussing here, these other two principal words thus far in the mantra, Krishna and Govinda, they're kind of going up here to hierarchy here. The mantra spans the whole of Krishna Leela. When we come to from Krishna with general, we come to Govinda, we come to the Braj Leela. This is the deity that corresponds with that path of Rag Bhakti, whereas Krishna can correspond also with Vaidhi Bhakti, taking you to Rukmini's love in Dwarka, this kind of bhakti, mixed with Aishwarya. But Govindaji, this name, this deity, then corresponding with Rag Marga. This path is so extraordinary. It's so filled with generosity and mercy. What does Krishna say in Bhagavad Gita in the seventh chapter? When he points to himself, talking about Maya, Prabhadyante, Maya Mitam Tarantite. This idea, and I think we've commented there in that verse, relative to Braj Bhakti in particular. Maya runs away from Krishna. This is the idea. Death, birth and death, the big problem. Runs away. 
in fear of Krishna. So, so generous is this Lord of Vrindavan, of the Braj, and the path to attain. And this, of course, the path that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has come to give us. So he answers the second question in this way, and then he says, Gopi jana bhala bha jnanena tadjnanam bhavati. What was the third question? Who can say? First question is, who is the Supreme Deity? Second question is, who is death afraid of? Third question, by knowing whom can all things be fully known? What does he say? What is his answer? Gopi jana bhala Gopi jana bhala So, there are things about Govinda, Krishna and Vrindavan, that not everybody is privy to. The romantic life of Govinda, this is the property of the gopis. And as you know, some of Krishna's friends also are involved to some extent in those romantic affairs. They're in a special position. Generally, we give a gradation of experience. Vrindasya rasa, in Prem Bhakti, in Golok, in Braj, has certain excellences. When we come to Prem Bhakti, then it's ornamented by the, in Braj, with excellence of Sneha, Man, Pranay, Rag, Anurag, Bhav, Mahabhav. Tasirati will take one to a certain level in terms of experiencing these embellishments or excellences. Sakiras, and above that is Vatsalirasa. And then we have Gopi Prem, right? But the speciality of the group of Krishna's friends that participates in his romantic affairs is that their excellence of their prem exceeds that of Vatsalya Bhakti. All the way to the excellence of Bhav. Bhav is a big word that's used in many ways. The general use of it is synonymous with Rati, which precedes prem. It's the ray of the sun of prem. As it's cultivated, it turns into that sun of prem. Then within prem, there's developments, as I say, Sneha, Man, Pranay, Rag, Anurag, Bhav, Mahabhav. Gopi Prem goes to Mahabhav, following in the wake of Radha's Bhav, as the Manjaris. And the Priyanam is there, love goes to that Bhav just before Mahabhav. So this romantic life of Krishna, in one sense everybody knows about it, but not everybody can talk about it, and not everybody can be directly involved in it in the Braj, and privy to all the intimacies, secrets of that. So he's saying, oh, by knowing Gopi Jana Balava, this aspect of Govinda in Braj, oh, nothing remains to be known. Also, charges have given an interesting comment with regard to Gopi Jana Balava being the be-all and end-all of knowledge. It's mentioned elsewhere in the commentary of Jiva Goswami that the word gopi also refers to material nature and jhana, its 25 elements. This is the way in which the Mayavadis will interpret it. So their interpretation is not untrue, but it leaves something to be desired. The simple idea being that one knows that material nature's 25 elements as explained in seed in Bhagavad Gita where, where the 25 constituents of material nature explained in seed Seven. Chapter 7, Krishna says what? Bhumirapo analovayu kamano buddhrevacha ahankara itiyame bina prakatirashtadha This verse, maybe verse 4, explains earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence. Read the commentary and you see how the, all the elements are talked about in that verse. And see, the point is here that knowing all the constituents of material nature doesn't mean just reading that commentary and knowing what they are, which you don't even know. What to speak of that? Knowing them means being above it, understanding it. I've understood it. It's within my grasp, so it means transcending it. So he's saying, as much as Gopi Jana means 25 material elements and knowing them, 
Gopi Janabalabam indicates one who has transcended material nature. So he knows everything about material nature that's worth knowing. We should note that. That doesn't mean that, like Prabhupada was once asked, do you know everything? And he said, yes. And then that fellow said, how many windows are there in the Empire State Building? And Prabhupada said, what did he say? As many drops of water as there are in an illusion of water, just like when you drive in the heat and it looks like there's water on the road. This is his answer. This is how he knows. He knows it's not worth pursuing. No matter how many stories high you're going, he knows what's going on in all those rooms. <laughs> Birth, death, disease, and old age, and it's intoxication, illicit sex, gambling, and meeting. When Prabhupada once was asked to walk in the hotel, I think they wanted to put him up in the hotel, he walked in the lobby, and he pointed in four different directions. He said, meat, eating, intoxication, gambling, and illicit sex. That's what this place, <laughs> institution, represents. So, anyway, one who understands material nature knows everything. And furthermore, when we take the spiritual side of this, as we have already discussed, take into prejudice, oh, he knows everything there is to be known about Krishna, about Govinda, all secret things, even in the Braj Lila. So in this way, Brahma is actually explaining the Gopal Mantra. Now, three of the principal words, which are names of God, are explained. And as we go on in this, these will be more and more meaning for these words and the efficacy of their incantation and so forth will be explained. The fourth part of the mantra consists of two syllables, thus making it, in terms of Gopal Tapani's explanation, a five-section mantra. In Brahma Samhita it's described as a six-section mantra, but here is a five-section mantra, so the words are broken differently in, in Brahma Samhita commentary. But here, five sections, so we've heard three, Krishna, Govinda, Bhubhijanabhala, and Swaha, Swaha, and Ha. Here it's Gopi, Jana, Balaba and Swaha. So, the sage's fourth question was, what makes the world turn? And the answer is, Brahma said, Swaha makes the world turn. So, Swaha, 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 Swaha indicates sacrifice. When we do a yagya, maybe you've seen the fire yagyas, they take the grains and they go, Swaha, Om Govindaya, Swaha. So the swaha is with the part of the participants. The priest says one thing and the participants respond swaha and they throw the grains in the fire or whatever it is. And that is symbolic of what? Of putting oneself really in the fire. So it's at the heart of this word swaha is sacrifice. And that is what makes the world turn in reality. In other words, to live in the world we need to get something. We have to have something, some food, some shelter and so forth. What really makes it turn, what makes it livable, if at all, is sacrifice. In other words, a very simple English adage, to give is to receive, is really at the heart of the whole idea of bhakti and reality. That giving, when we give up our material possessions, we get within the material realm. And of course, we have to look at the bigger picture of material life. It doesn't involve just this one frame of the movie of our life that we think is the all-in-all by giving of material possessions appropriately and so forth in this life. Oh, we can get heaven in the next life. What kind of gain it is is inconceivable. Going to the heavenly planets compared to living in Santa Rosa. The material facilities, unbelievable, unimaginable, thousands of times greater. And, of course, when we give of our material possessions, to some extent we're giving of ourself because we're identified with those. The more the identification with the self, in terms of our giving being self-giving, increases the more the gain is for the self. So ultimately we're teaching that what we should give is we should give our material possessions because we're identified with our material possessions. 
by giving them, we reduce our identification with material nature. But what we are supposed to be giving and giving our material possessions is, as I said, giving part of ourself. I mean, ultimately, we are to give our whole self. We are to be sacrificed on the altar. Not just what I own, I give my money, but the whole idea of what I am. I'm a uh, doctor of religion. I'm a, a, a civil engineer or whatever it goes with it. I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm from here. Man, I'm the whole, in every detail, what my sense of self is, outside of what I've learned or experienced through the culture of devotional service, that falls in and into the fire. <sighs> Dissolved. <laughs> Dissolved. Come out. What gain you will get from that, how you will come out new. What will be your new identity? The picture of your new identity is so bright. All your present identity is all what you can derive with between your ears. The spinning of the wheels of the mind, you can create some sense of self. And it is so small and so limited to the reality outside of the mind in the sense of self that you can arrive at. Sacrifice, sacrifice, swaha, swaha. This makes the world go round, even in the material sense. This model really works. Give, receive. Even if you don't receive it all in this life, you will receive a sense, a feeling of being a better person, a more sense of peace and contentment and so forth, even if you die poor. And of course, you won't. You will, you may, but in your next life, you'll be rich, you go to heaven. And, so forth. and again, the greatest wealth, of course, is derived from the full giving of the self, properly reposed in Krishna consciousness. We get a real, our real nature, our real identity. So he says, Swaha. That makes the world turn. And as it makes this world turn, the material world, it makes the spiritual world turn. So Swaha is indicative also of the um, Prem Shakti, the Yoga Maya that makes the, the Leela go round, the Shakti of the Lord. In other words, Krishna means Brahman with Shakti. Therefore, there's movement, there's leela. You understand? In Brahman, it's all still. Brahman, the absolute, is still. Shankar's objective is to enter into Brahman and to be still. But the movement, the leela is moving. What energizes the movement, what makes it move, is the shakti of the Lord, his surup shakti. He is one, Krishna is one, but he becomes two as Radha and Krishna to taste himself. So that Ladini shakti is in him, but it manifests externally as Radha, and this is making the whole leela go round. And that Ladini Shakti that Radha so embodies, as that comes to us, we get life and a part in the ever-moving spiritual flow of the Leela. So it makes the spiritual world go around as well. Actually, I didn't bring it up in the commentary here, but Swaha also indicates the very principle of Guru by which Krishna makes himself known. It makes it possible for him to be known and for us to participate in his Leela. So in this way, Brahma has answered very briefly, the sages, and they will inquire further, as it is appropriate to do, submissively, to get the clarification. Shri Gopal Tapani Upanishad ki jai. Sisi Gaur Nittananda ki jai. Vodi Vashnab Guru Parampara ki jai.